Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Even when you feel low, you can still go. Even when you feel slow, you can still go. Even when there's no hope, you can still go. I never answered a no, man, I still go. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. I feel like you got a little bit ripped off last week with a short episode as my season opener, but I really wanted Linda's story to be out in November. But not to worry, today is a longer episode because I had access to more information on this one, which is the difference between short and longer episodes because I don't like filling in gaps with fluff. In the province of Ontario, which is probably the province that most American listeners are most familiar with since it has close borders with Detroit and New York, And within the province is a section of the greater area of Toronto called York. And within York is a city of about 340,000 people called Markham. Ontario is actually a very large province, but most of the major cities are along the banks of Lake Ontario and the other Great Lakes. And once you get more north, it's not as populous. And of course, very north, you run into James Bay, which empties into the Hudson's Bay where polar bears live. None of which has anything to do with today's story, but I think it's something a lot of American listeners aren't as familiar with like how much of our vast and large country is just wilderness. And about half of you are Americans, so I'm just trying to paint the scene here. So anyways, back to Markham. Markham has a very large immigrant population, and of that population, about 58 to 40 percent of that is people that have immigrated from China. So when Hai Han Pan immigrated from Vietnam, Han was actually of Chinese ancestry, but living in Vietnam, known as Chinese diaspora, which is a thing when one culture of people relocate to another country, but not like a long time ago. So Han would have been Chinese Vietnamese, so essentially Vietnamese, but with Chinese roots, kind of like how I'm German, but so far removed that I would sound silly telling people when asked where I'm from if I said Germany, especially considering I've never been to Germany in my entire life. Anyways, when he immigrated to Canada as a political refugee in 1979 and met Bic Ha, also an immigrant from Vietnam, only she was Vietnamese Vietnamese, they married in Scarborough just outside of Toronto and set on saving their pennies to move to Markham. And because of the large Asian immigrant population in Markham, this was something that they really wanted because if you move from one country and speak one language, I would also want to be around people that I can talk to fluently. So they worked hard both getting jobs at Magna International, which is a massive auto parts manufacturer there, where Han worked as a tool and die operator and Bic made car parts. In June 1986, they were wel- they welcomed into their family a daughter, Jennifer, and three years later, a son named Felix. And by 2004, their money saving had paid off rather handsomely, and they bought a lovely two-story brick house at 238 Helen Avenue with a two-car garage in the neighborhood of U. Unionville in Markham, and Bick had herself a Lexus, and Han was driving a Mercedes, and things were going awesome. 
until the evening of November 8, 2010, when around 10.30 p.m., Han and Bick's daughter Jennifer called 911 in a state of panic that intruders had broken in, tied her up, and shot her parents over the few hundred dollars that they had in the home. This is the murder of Big Pam. Even when you feel low, you can still go. Even when you feel slow, you can still go. Even when there's no hope, you can still go. I never answered a no, man, I still go. On this November evening in 2010, Han was at home and upstairs in the master bedroom, and Bick had arrived home around 8 p.m. Jennifer had come down from her room to say goodnight to her, and Jennifer went to her bedroom on the second floor where she called a friend on the phone and put her headphones on to listen to music. And shortly later, she heard loud talking with unfamiliar voices and peeked out of her bedroom door to see three men that she didn't know ransacking the house and pointing guns at her parents asking for money. When police arrived, they found 53-year-old Bick Pan dead from a gunshot wound in the basement and Han, 57, had managed to escape out the front door and get to the neighbors. He was immediately transported to the hospital and put into a medically induced coma as he had also suffered a gunshot wound to the head. Jennifer sat with her dad in the ambulance and at the hospital for a few hours before police asked her to come with them to the station to give her report of the incident. Suddenly, I just heard my mom calling for my dad to come down, and that's when I lowered the volume on my TV, and I could hear the voices weren't any voices I was very familiar with. And so I was scared, and I couldn't move. I just sat in my room for a while, and then I thought I heard them all let, like leave the top floor, and I peered out of my bedroom door, and a guy was there, and he came at me, and had string in his hands and tied my arms back and said, I have a gun behind your back. Do what I say. If you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where is the money? Show me where your money is. My mom kept trying to get up and they kept telling her to sit down. And so I didn't want her to get hurt. So I told her, mom, sit down. They were trying to find her wallet, but she, her English isn't good, so she kept saying first. They kept pushing her down onto the chair. Okay. Take your time. Take your time. All this is very important, so take your time. They kept all the lights off on the main floor. The only time there was light was when they opened the fridge door to see if they could find where my mom's purse was. One of the, the gentlemen asked my father if he had money in his wallet and where his wallet was. So they took me, because I was next to the stairwell, they took me up the stairs to sh show them where my father's wallet was but I'm I didn't know they had turned the room upside down I didn't know where his pants were at that time 
next thing I know, oh, I think I heard my parents going down the stairs, and my mom was asking them for me to come with them. They wouldn't let me come with them. And after they said, the last thing I heard them say was, you lied, you lied to us, you lied to us. And then I heard two pops. My mom screamed. I yelled out for her. <laughs> and a couple more pops. Take your time. Take your time. And I think I heard my mom say or moan or something. And then they did one more before they left. And then one of the guys <laughs> said, We have to go now. It's been too long. <laughs> and then they ran out the door. And I think <laughs> once they were out the door, I heard my dad go up the stairs, and at that point, I had my phone in my po in my on me behind me that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I when I when they when I thought that they had heard them all leave, and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called 911. But I, I still hadn't heard anything from my mom, and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, just moaning and making sounds. The only thing I can remember was him was he had dreadlocks. He had dreadlocks. So are you, uh, it, can you describe his race to me? He was black. Did it was his head covered? Was his face covered? Do you remember anything about that? Just that his dreadlocks were like kind of like flopping all over the place. I couldn't really see his face, and they kept the lights dark as much as as much as possible. Did he have a gun? Yes. Did you see the gun? I only saw the top part of it. What did it look like? Um, kind of, it was black. Yeah. Do you know where the other guys involved in this are? I know one stayed with my parents downstairs. Okay. Um, the other one, I'm not, at that point in time, I was more focused on him, like he was seeing me and he was coming after me. So you're so saying there's three for sure? That's all, you saw a total of three at one time, you saw three people yes. together? Yes, when I went downstairs, I okay. saw three shadows. Now the first guy, who spoke to you, what kind of, did he have any accent? None that clear? I could make out. Was it clear English? English. Unbroken? Unbroken. No accent? From the terms he used, I didn't get to pick up an accent, no. He used so short phrases. He sounded, he sounded Canadian? I would say, yes, he was born here. He was born here. And the next thing I can hear are them telling my parents to move to the basement. Okay. And I'm asking them, why, where are you going? And my mom's yelling to me, I want my daughter. Why can't my daughter come too? I want my daughter. Who do you hear yelling you lie to us or to Number that extent? Number three. Number three. To my, I'm assuming it's to my father because he was the one asking for the wallet. Now you hear this commotion downstairs. You said you heard two pops and you heard who scream? Your mom. And what was she screaming? Do you I remember? Make it out. It yeah. was kind of like a cry, cry yell, so it was just... Okay. They had made the first round or pop, pop, and they, has, they had said, okay, that's enough. Let's go. Who said that? Whose voice is that? Number one. Okay. And then I heard one more after that. And they were like, that's enough. Let's go. Okay. And again, that's number one. 
Yeah. So what do you hear next after you hear the scrambling? They're gone because you're hearing no more. I gather that's how you assume they're gone is because you don't hear it. Then you hear your dad. I, I reach for my phone at okay. that point. And you call 911, okay? When your father exits, you hear the door open because you hear your dog and then you And then I can hear like the outside noises. Okay. Like the wind coming in and I just hear my dad, I think he's... Fortunately, Felix was not in the home during the home invasion. Not a lot of is known about his whereabouts at this time. It was either that he was just simply wasn't home out of sheer luck or might have been residing at a university campus outside of Markham. Jennifer was 24 and attending the University of Toronto and volunteering at the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, so she was living at home, and Felix was 21. And if my detective skills are up to snuff, I believe he attended McMaster University in Halifax studying engineering, so was probably living in Hamilton at that time. So we have three suspects, one black male about 28 to 33 years old, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 8 with dreadlocks, another black male about 30 years old, 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 8, thin build, but his face was covered with a bandana, and a third man of Caribbean descent all wearing dark clothing. There was some security footage from the street that showed a car pulling into the driveway, and they all appeared to have entered the house from the front entrance. So not a whole lot to go on. Police Chief Armin Labarge told the National, From all of our investigation to date, they're hardworking residents of our community who, for absolutely no particular reason that we can know at this point in time, appear to have been targeted and are the victims of a very brutal home invasion. Although the attack appeared to be random and that perpetrators were clearly looking for money and had picked the pan house as a likely source of cash and expensive items based on the fact that it was in a nice area and they had a Lexus and a Mercedes, something didn't feel random about this. Jennifer had the job of arranging not only Bick's funeral, which her father would not be able to attend because he was still in the hospital, but also Bick's father. Jennifer and Felix's grandfather, because of the custom, is that older family members must have their funerals first. Bick's father was still alive, but a funeral had to be arranged and attended first. So as police do, they decided to get nosy into what could possibly motivate three men to break into a house and kill someone and seriously wound another. Part of it didn't feel random because although the house was kind of ransacked, they didn't really get away with that much stuff. Really only a little bit of cash was missing. So they start looking into the family, just nosing about seeing what they can find. Usually it turns out that the dad has gotten himself into something that he was a little deep into and had made his family a target for some reason. After all, it's always the husband, right? Well, no luck with Han. He was clean as a whistle, as they say. Same story with Mum. And one of those needling and intrusive thoughts made investigators turn their attention to Jennifer. After all, calling 911 when tied up is a pretty impressive feat. And why was she left unharmed? Jennifer's life, it turned out, had recently begun to unravel. And when someone's life unravels, things can get ugly. So they started looking into Jennifer a little bit deeper. Jennifer had, by all accounts, been a good kid with no issues. She played piano from the age of four and was an accomplished figure skater until she injured her knee a few years ago, ending her dreams of the Olympics. But that wasn't really where her life had unraveled. And I think there's an ad break coming up. Let's find out. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Jennifer had gone to Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School. Despite her parents' very high expectations for her grades, she was getting mostly Bs, something her parents wouldn't have been very happy about. So she had spent a good portion of her high school career forging her report cards to report to her parents that her grades were the expected straight A's. But it had started to catch up to her when she failed calculus in her last year of high school, and Ryerson University, where she had applied to, rescinded their application for the following fall term. And instead of admit to her parents that she had not gotten into Ryerson but didn't even finish high school, she spent her days that fall sitting in cafes and working as a waitress and giving piano lessons to earn money so that she could tell her parents she had gotten scholarships. One of the other things that Han and Bick didn't know about was that back in high school, she had started spending time with a Chinese-Filipino boy named Daniel Wong. He was living in Ajax and working at the Boston Pizza because he had been forced to transfer to another school because of his grades. He was also a pot dealer as a side hustle. And the shit hit the fan, as they say, when Jennifer had told her parents that she had been accepted into a pharmacy program at the University of Toronto. She had even taken the time and money to purchase some used textbooks and make notes so it looked like she was studying hard. I mean... If people put as much effort into being successful as they did looking the part. Anyways, she also had told them that she had started to volunteer at the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital and wanted to stay at a friend's during the week closer to the campus. This friend, of course, was Daniel Wong, whom she knew her parents would wig out over if they knew that she was dating anyone, let alone a pot dealer working at Boston Pizza. But Bick actually started to get suspicious because Jennifer wasn't given a hospital ID badge or any kind of uniform for her volunteer work. I volunteered at a hospital when I was young, and I don't remember getting an ID badge, but I did get a name tag and an, like an apron type thing. But that was about 100 years ago when the dinosaurs roamed, so I hope I would think to question that. Well, Bick actually followed her to the hospital one day, and it didn't take a detective to figure out that she'd been lying to them. So in a tearful plea for mercy, she revealed all her lies, including Daniel Wong, and that she hadn't even finished high school. Han wanted Jennifer thrown out of the house for her treason and treachery, but Bick had persuaded him to let her stay, and she was, of course, forbidden to see Daniel anymore and could continue to teach piano, which was really the only decision that she had made in the last few years that her parents even partially approved of. All of this, of course, piqued the interest of the detectives. But things had calmed down after she had been discovered, and Daniel had broken off the relationship anyways, and she seemed to be abiding by the rules. However, they still smelled a rat. When talking to some of her relatives who were at the hospital when Jennifer was there with her father who was in a coma, she had needed to use a phone and a few of them offered that she could use theirs. But she declined and had made a phone call from a hospital payphone. Now what, 24-year-old in 2010 even knew how to use a payphone? That's a little odd. So who could she have been talking to and what about? And how did she get out of being tied up to call 911. 
And then Han woke up. And Han relayed his version of what he remembered of the worst night of his life. He never observed Jennifer tied up at all, and in fact remembered on several occasions her whispering to one of the men in a soft and somewhat friendly tone. Hmm. And it might, just might, have been this part of her first interview that made her look perhaps like she knew more or had a bit of a motive. Like the wind coming in, and I just hear my dad, I think he's... It might just be me, but is that how you would describe your nearly mortally wounded father? To me, it sounds a little bit like mocking. Jennifer's interviews have been analyzed by a number of psychiatrists and behavior analysts, and none of them mention this little part. But to me, her tone speaks volumes. So based probably on some other stuff, and not that at all, they brought her back in to question her about some of her inconsistencies. She's calling him by his name and to come down. Okay, so give us verbatim. What do you hear her saying? In Vietnamese. She's like, Hanoi, someday. And what does that translate to? Uh, That's my father's name, Han. Uh, Come down here. Does she say anything else associated with with that? I can't hear clearly because, like, I was on the phone and the TV was on. Sure. But that's what I heard. Is she yelling? Or is it uh, at normal? It's a loud, it's a, she's not yelling, but it's a loud tone. As I'm hanging up the phone with him, I hear footsteps going up the stairs. Okay. But they're not, they're heavier footsteps than what is to be expected from my parents. Okay. I peered out and there was a person in the my what would have been my brother's room. Okay. From where I was standing, my father was sitting on the right, and my mother was sitting on the left. Sitting where? On a couch, on our couch. Sitting on the couch. Are they looking out towards you? No, their backs are towards me. Okay. And you're now on the ground level? Are you on the floor? Or on the sitting sitting on the the floor? I'm sitting on the floor. All right, where are your hands? They had tied my hands, So let's go. Let's go back up to the stairs. Remember we said... Take the other statement and whatever we've said before. No, I, I said it earlier. Okay, then we must, let's let's get back to that area. I think you might have touched on it. We went back into the description. So where does you, where do you get your hands tied and where does the string come from? I'm not sure where the string comes from, but he had the string. Okay. And he, after I gave him my money, that's when he tied my hands. He had pushed her back onto the couch. and she Who kept, pushed her? Number two. Okay. He was pushing her back onto the couch. And she she kept saying, where's my purse? Where's my purse? And the guy kept telling her to sit down, and I didn't want my mom to get hurt. How many times does she get up and get pushed back down? I'd say she got up twice. Has number two uttered a word at this point in time? can't remember hearing him. Okay. So we're just correcting what you said earlier because you said earlier that it was number two who was asking where the purse is, what are the purse is, and now you've said now it's number one guy who would I'm initially... Sorry, it's just... No, no, no. It's all a purpose. Uh, the purpose here is clarifying what you're saying. So number I one just is... I don't want to... Number one is the one who's doing the talking about the purse. Number three is focused on your dad's wallet. Okay. You get a good look at number two now of what he's wearing? All I could tell was he had a vest and his face was 
like a long oval face. Get a vest? No, hoodie. Okay. A dark hoodie. Okay. Did did you see them recover anything inside your mom and dad's room? I did not see anything, no. Are you sure? Because uh, we would, when we spoke the last time, there was some mention of some other money that went missing. I believe when they were looking for my father's wallet, they had opened the drawer, and there was a, it was in an envelope. What drawer would that have been in? On my, on the, if you're in, at the door where I was standing on the left side, the bedside table. Whose side of the bed is it? That's my mother's side of the bed. Okay. And approximately how much money? I'm not sure how much she took out for our our trip. But I can o I can only estimate about a few hundred dollars. Few hundred because at the time the last time or you told me you were pretty adamant about about eleven hundred dollars. So I'm curious to know how you came up with that number. I think at this point, Jennifer is starting to realize she might have made some mistakes in her retelling of the story, and panic is setting in. I believe it was when we were at the border, we and we stopped at the duty-free. My mother was deciding whether to use her U.S. currency or her uh, her U.S. currency or her Canadian currency. So it was at that time you remember hearing eleven hundred dollars. And that's what, is that the inference you're saying? Is that, because you're pretty solid saying that it was $1,100 that went missing, that was, was taken. And that you saw it when we spoke. And who took it? Who took possession of the money? I'm sorry. It's all right. Let's come back to now. You're being taken to the, the banister in the I'm upper sorry, room. I don't don't apologize, okay? I'm going to try and ask you questions to try and clarify points, okay? If you don't remember, you don't remember. Okay, so don't, there's no apologizing. The only reason you would apologize to me is if you lied to me. No. Okay, no, so just, just, then in this case, then don't apologize to me. It's okay, okay? I'm going to ask you questions to clarify points. You're now bound to this, to the, to the railing. Can you show me, can you stand up and turn around and tell me, just show on the camera, how your hands are bound and how you are against the railing. You don't have to sit down. I just need to see how you were. Just tell you. The only reason that I'm trying to, I, I need to do this is that I'm also going to ask you is that it, so take this back to, from, Take it out of a traumatizing event, which it is, and pu put yourself into a more clinical position because I want to see how you could physically get your phone out of your waistband. We're obviously going to need to know that. It's very important. So traumatize a way. Now put yourself into a just a state of I need to man mechanically show how I can get access to my phone, okay, because that's obviously very relevant. I, we know you made the phone call. But questions are going to obviously raise is that if my hands are bound and I'm against the railing, how do I talk to a 911 operator? Okay, so clinically, this is now a clinical demonstration. Just stand up, focus in on how you did it. And I want you to stick that in your waistband as an example. Okay, so take your, just take your sweat off, because this will be a very smooth, very quick thing. It's a one-time demonstration. I'm not going to ask you to repeat it. They tied my upper arm. Yes. Around the banister. Yes. But my hands were bound together. 
So your hands bound together, and this is the arm that's the, the strings wrapped around against the banister? Mm -hmm. Okay, so now how can you get to the phone? And how do you make the phone call? 911. And do you talk down like that? Yes, I'm yelling at the phone like this. And how can you hear? I turn the volume on max. Yes. So that's exactly the way that you're talking to her against the railing. <laughs> okay, that's good enough. Sit down. And they're moving. And my mom's yelling. Where's my daughter? I want my daughter. Where's my daughter? And I'm yelling at mom, I'm here. Here. Jennifer, take a Kleenex and, and just take a minute. Okay. So we're now down in the basement. They're down in the you know your parents are down in the basement. I heard pop. And then my mom. I heard her squeal. Once the door closed, I heard my father. He ran up the stairs and all I could hear was moaning. Yeah. Once I heard him starting to move, I that's when I pulled out the phone and I was trying to call 911. So somehow they got into your house by getting through your mom down on the lower level, right? Because she's the only one who's down she there. She's the only one down there. So it's very confusing. Generally, random events are not, in most cases, random. There's a rhyme or reason why they've come to your house. But from what you've told me inside the house, the only thing that you hear them saying to you is they're looking for money. They're not looking for a specific quantity of money? No. So you're telling me that you you had no involvement in what happened, meaning not saying how the outcome came, but you you had no involvement in, in any type of illegal activity that would have drawn you or the attention of you to have bad people come to your house looking for large sums of money. You're not involved in this any which way. Because the question obviously stands, Jennifer, is you're upstairs and they're downstairs. No. Right? So it's a natural concern when why would they leave you alone? Why would they not do the same to you? And you can't answer that question? The only thing I can say is he said I cooperated. The, but I asked him to take me. The number one guy? Mom. The number one guy said you cooperated. Okay. Who's to say this whole thing isn't a lie? That what you're telling me is a lie? Because if you are lying, it's the most cold-blooded thing that I have ever oh faced God. in my life. There is nothing that you've said to me today is a lie. Now, back to another very difficult question. But if I don't ask it, I'm going to be, you, it's an obvious one. The resentment that you had, that you may have had towards your parents for the interference in your relationship and your life and essentially locking you down in your house. At the end of the day, I love my parents and I chose to be with them. And if I wanted to, I could have just left, but I didn't. I wanted to stay with them and take care of them. So this wasn't some evil plot that you thought up to... Oh my God, no. 
no interaction, no belief, no, you didn't have anything to do with this thing at all, whatsoever. No. You don't engage in illegal activity? No. Because you know that it'll be very easy, it, it will be a very easy thing to discredit you on, right? We're, we're in the process of trying to add credibility to what you tell us, and that's through the process of asking people and doing whatever. Through that same process, it will be very easy to find the flaws in what you've said, which again then turns the focus back to you. Okay? I don't... It's a natural progress, it's a natural thing that investigators do. We eliminate people or we draw our attention to them. It's a natural uh, thing. It's, a, it's not brain surgery. Okay? And at the end of this second interview, the detective leaves her with a little something to think about. Amusing, if you will. Okay, we're, we're, we're done, essentially. <sighs> How are you feeling? Sorry, you really scared me. Did I? What did I scare you about? Sit down. Sit down and, and t take a load off. Tell me, how, tell me how you're feeling and how I scared you. I don't want you walking away from here thinking I'm evil. I want you to walking around from here thinking that this guy is helping investigate my mom's murder and he's going to turn over every stone possible to make sure that we catch the people who do that. That's what I want you feeling. So I don't want you walking away from here thinking that I'm a, I'm, I scared you or I'm, I'm a bad man. Sometimes we have to ask very, very difficult questions, but it's my job, okay? You're our only link. You're it. Until your dad regains his back and being able to be, be, be spoken to, right now you're our only link to this case. So we're, we may rely on you heavily on, until we can speak to your father. Okay? So don't be afraid. If you've told the truth, the last thing you should be afraid of is, is anything. If you've told the truth and you've been truthful through this whole process, then you're helping. You're doing your part. Okay? And don't be afraid of me. I'm just afraid because, you know, like, I know everything is just all pointing negatively right now, and I, I don't understand why. I'm just, I feel that, like, the way you're, you're speaking to me, it's kind of like, I know you said that you had to say those things, but it's... Yeah. It's here, and I've already said it to the special victims yesterday, but there's, like, ideas in my head. Yeah. And I'm afraid to say it out loud, but... Ideas about speculation of what happened, or how it happened? Unfortunately, uh, at times, some of us have to point the finger, seem like we're pointing the finger, and it really is just to provoke you to see what you're going to do, how you're going to respond. Okay? So... It's only a question, and it ha it's been answered. And if you've been truthful, okay, you have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing. Okay? <laughs> Police at this point are pretty sure Jennifer set this up. But who did she get, and how did she convince them? And they start talking to Daniel. Oh, and by looking at Jennifer's phone. Kids these days in their text messages. What happened is a convoluted mess and with a lot of players and no real definitive decision on who did what. So if you fall a little behind, don't worry. The bottom line was Jennifer was behind all of it. Daniel had gotten fed up with Jennifer's parents and their rules and had broken it off with Jennifer and started a new relationship. So Jennifer texted him, then call it off with homeboy. Who's homeboy? Well, we're going to come back to that. In the spring of 2010, 
so about eight to six to eight months before the home invasion, Jennifer's jealous over Daniel's new relationship, texted Daniel that a man had come to her house showing her a police badge, and when she let him in, a group of men rushed in after him and gang-raped her. And then a couple of days later, they mailed a bullet to her as a warning. And she was sure that Daniel's new girlfriend had set all of this up. And, like a sucker, Daniel dumped the new girl and came back to Jennifer. Jennifer had promised that she would take care of her parents and it wasn't going to be an issue anymore. But wait, it gets stupider. Jennifer gets in touch with this guy from high school named Andrew Montemayor. He had been one of those kids in school that bragged about robbing people at knife point, something that he denies. Anyways, she approached him with a plot to get rid of her father, Han. So Andrew introduced her to this other kid from back in high school, Ricardo Duncan. Jennifer gave Ricardo $1,500 in cash from her waitress job to kill her dad in the parking lot at the Magna International. Now, Ricardo says he only ever got $200 from her that he had borrowed to go out with friends and doesn't know nothing about nothing. But either way, Han lived to see another day, thankfully. So with Jennifer and Daniel back together, they came up with a plan that if they paid someone $10,000 to kill Jennifer's parents, they would then be able to get their hands on her portion of the insurance money, which was estimated to be about 500000 And with that, they could be free to do whatever they wanted and stay together. Daniel contacted his buddy, Jamaican-born and dreadlock-doning Leonard Roy Crawford, a.k.a. Homeboy. And Homeboy took him seriously enough that he gave Jennifer a SIM card and a burner phone to use to contact him. Then Homeboy got in touch with his friend Eric Sean Cardi, street name Sniper of no fixed address, and Cardi, aka Sniper, touched base with David Mavaganam. And with all of those players in mind, on the night of November 8, 2010, after her mom arrived home for the night, Jennifer unlocked the front door without her seeing and went to her room to wait things out and called David Mavagaman on her new shiny burner phone to let him know that everything was set. David and two people that have never been able to be definitively identified came to the front door with guns and ransacked things, just for fun and for show. And sometime in the melee, Jennifer handed them $2,000 in cash and helped them find the $1,100 her mom had stored for a trip. Sniper says that he drove the getaway car. He didn't shoot anyone and he didn't even enter the house. No one was able to prove or disprove this, but he was out on bail at the time for murder that he committed in 2009. So I'm sure that makes him a very credible source. Daniel Wong and Homeboy, as it turns out, had alibis that they were both at their respective jobs at the time. Suspish, but couldn't prove anything. So David for sure, and two who the heck knows, took Bick and Han down to the basement of the house and shot them both multiple times. They didn't realize that Han was still alive. Jennifer was not tied up, no strings. She just got very lucky when asked how to show the detective how to how she had managed to get out of the ties and dial 911. Well, lucky, but also still stupid because she didn't get her story memorized very well. And it took a while to track down all the players. But David was arrested at a mall in North York on April 14, 2011, Cardi slash Sniper was arrested at the Maplehurst Correctional Institution where he was calling home for his other murder and Daniel was arrested on April 26, 2011 at Boston Pizza. 
I'm sure his boss was very thrilled with that. Homeboy wasn't arrested until May 4th, 2011. Jennifer was interviewed a third time about two weeks after Bick's murder, and this time the detective wasn't so polite. The good thing about this is your dad did live, and that went against the plan. If you could make this decision over, you would change it, okay? You would change it, right? Of course. If I knew he was going to get hurt, of course okay. I would. Jen, you knew who was going to get hurt. That's the whole issue here. Okay, that's the whole issue here. You gave them the plan for your parents, right? That's all I need to hear. No. Jen, tell me what happened. I told you what happened. Okay, all of it. You did. Okay, all you have to do is here is tell me right now. Bill, yes, I made a mistake. Bill, yes, I made a mistake. This plan was for my parents. Okay. I need you to listen close to me, okay, Jim? At this point in the investigation, okay, I'm going to be arresting you for murder, okay? Also attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Do you understand that? Jennifer changed her story that the setup was to have herself killed to not be a disappointment to her parents and it all went wrong, who knows why or how. Jennifer and her minions were all tried together in March 2014, and because there were so many, the trial took 10 full months to complete. All of them pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. David's cell phone had pinged off towers in Rexdale before 9 p.m., and then he traveled east, pinging near Jennifer's house just after 10 p.m., and heading away at 10.45. A neighbor testified that David and Eric Cardi were together in the vehicle. David was in contact with his girlfriend throughout the night, and, and she heard Eric in the background. David's attorney argued that he knew what he was that he was going to do a home invasion, but didn't know anything about a murder that was going to happen. Han, Jennifer's dad, testified that he heard one of the men ask, should we tie them up or tape them? And the answer was, shoot and exit by the front door. He said that the men were two black men and one white man. Len Crawford, good old homeboy, he claimed that he was gainfully employed at the Kick Custom Products as a mechanic and didn't need the money. He was also a father, so couldn't possibly involved in, be involved in such a thing, although he did admit to selling marijuana on the side. The smoking gun, as they say, was the hundred plus text messages exchanged between Daniel and Jennifer in the hours just before the murder, which pretty much laid out their plans. Her father, Han, testified against his daughter, which I'm sure was beyond heartbreaking for him, and 200 exhibits and 50 witnesses later, Jennifer, Daniel, David, and homeboy Crawford were all convicted and each got a life sentence with no parole for 25 years. The actual trigger man who shot Bick was never outed. Cardi slash Sniper, on the other hand, was originally to be tried with everybody else, but his lawyer got sick. So that summer, his part in the trial was declared a mistrial. In December 2015, he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and got 18 years not wanting to go through a full trial for it. And based on the fact that he was already serving a life sentence, I mean, what the heck, right? Two for one. At the time of Bick's murder, he was on the run from charges of first-degree murder of his one-time friend, Kirk Matthews. 
Jennifer's sentence came with a court order banning her from ever contacting her family, brother, or any other family member again at the request of Han and Felix. Sniper slash Cardi, he died in prison on April 26, 2018 at the Kent Institute, seven months after losing his appeal on his 2009 murder charge. In May 2023, all of them were granted an appeal for a new trial on the first-degree murder charges based on the fact that the judge instructed the jury to only consider scenarios that were first-degree and not consider it to have been second-degree or manslaughter, which is kind of stupid since they all knew and planned what they were going to go do that night. But the appeal decision said, quote, The jury might have had a doubt about the planned and deliberate murder of Pan's mother, but be satisfied that the appellates knew that the murder of Pan's mother was a probable consequence of a plan to kill her father. Um, so this could give rise to a con- conviction for second degree murder. And the convictions for attempted murder of Han still stood. No current word on how that's going for them. Han told Tuku News, After I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel dead too. Felix moved to the Maritimes to get away from being connected to his sister. Last time, 238 Helen Avenue was on the market. It was worth about $1.5 million. But at the time, Han had a hard time selling it and had to reduce the price a few times because no one wanted anything to do with the stigmatized property. And that was the murder of Bick Ha Pan and the conspiracy to murder Han Pan by their very own daughter. Uh, So I'll let you know how her second trial goes. I'm going to be back again with another case next week. And in the meantime, you know what to do. You probably already did it. But if you didn't, subscribe, rate, review. And if you haven't already, sign up for the exclusive ad-free feed because you are missing out on some really great episodes, if I do say so myself. As always, thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.